in chapter 17. The big idea of chapter 17 was simply this, was that God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. As we begin to look through chapter 17 and begin to unpack all the details, everything begin to lead us back to that same truth. God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. No, no, no plan, no power, no, 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 um, no, no king can keep his plan from happening. Well, that's great. However, there are some passages of Scripture that are so long that are so difficult, that are so complicated with characters and actions, that really nailing down just one single theme is really, really difficult to be able to do. And we have a passage like that before us this morning. This is a really long story. Lots of different characters, a lot of different things going on, as you probably notice as we begin to sing it, or sing it, as we sang the scriptures this morning, as we begin to go through it this morning. But I have to come up as a pastor to teach the text. I have to come up with something. And so if I were to just narrow this whole story down into one word and one theme, it would have to be the theme of sin. Everybody's favorite theme, right? That's what, but when you got up this morning, you thought, man, I hope the theme is sin. That's really what I want to hear, the sin sermon. No, um, most of us don't want to hear about sin, but I believe this is what this text is about. And not primarily because it's filled with a bunch of sinful people doing egregious sinful things against God, but rather what the text actually does is it, it makes us aware of certain aspects of sin, Certain things that we need to be aware of of sin that oftentimes we might unintentionally completely forget about altogether. And so we want to look at these three aspects of sin this morning. Number one, here they are. First of all, is sin's curse. Sin's curse. There is a sin, there is a curse that comes along with our sin. Now, back in chapter 17, we saw that God used the counsel of a man by the name of Hushai to deliver David, his family, and his followers from Absalom. And they traveled from Jerusalem, some 20 miles away, to a town known as Mahanaim. And it was in this town that David was be able to find temporary rest and security and safety, but he also found some time in order for him to be able to come up with a plan to go to battle with his son Absalom. And in chapter, uh, in chapter 18, the beginning of the first five verses, he lays out that plan for us. It basically says, here's how he divides up the men. He's got three different commanders who are ultimately leading, one of them being Joab. And then he says that, that what they're going to do is they're going to take him into the woods, into the forest forest to be able to fight, and there's all reasons for doing this. But what sticks out most about this plan is really the absence of David. This time, again, David is not going to battle with his men, but this time it's not because it's his choice, it's more of his men's choice. They don't want him fighting with them. And they begin to give all these reasons. They say, look, you're more valuable than any of us. If we go in there and things turn bad and you die, then this whole thing is over. He says, but if you, if you leave, if you're outside of the battle and, and, and half of us get wiped out, then we could all, the, the survivors can come to you and you can live to fight another day. And so you can continue to protect yourself, your family, and your throne. Now, all of these are reasons of why he shouldn't go out, but I think there's another clearer reason why they don't want David with him, and it's found in verse 5. In verse 5, we read this, David said to his men before they go out, deal gently with for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now listen, I have never been in the military. 
I have never been to war. I've never been on the battlefield. I know some of you have, and I'm so appreciative of that. But I have to think that if I ever went to war, and the rules of engagement that were given to me by the commander uh, was, was this, was to deal gently with the enemy that wanted to kill me, I think I would want that commander to sit this one out as well. I don't want to be gentle with people who are trying to take my life and try to hurt me. And so they have David sit aside, and and it really ends up working out. The Bible says that they end up fighting him primarily within the forest of Ephraim. Now, the reason they would do this is because they had such fewer men. If they were out in a big, giant battlefield, uh, Absalom's men could just bull rush them, wipe them out in one massive force of of power and just wipe them out. But now they're spread out, and not on a battlefield, but in in, in the woods, within the forest itself. And so now this is going to cause all kinds of problems for Absalom's men to be able to fight, to be able to even get to their enemies because of the thickets, because of the swamps, because of everything else that is there. I don't know if they have swamps. I'm thinking of Florida. But, but if they're going to be able to fight. So this is going to really make the, the battlefield more level. And so we find out that it actually works. In fact, the Bible says in verse 8 that, uh, that, that many of them, great, that there was greater harm than the swords of David's men because they went into the forest. And we see that it even worked on Absalom himself. In verse 8, this is where we pick up, follow along if you will. It says, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak and was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. So understand this picture. He's, he's ruling, he's shouting out orders, he's looking to his right and his left, I guess. And all of a sudden he doesn't look, somebody says watch out, he turns his head, he gets his head caught in, in a branch. And so unfortunately the mule doesn't stop, the mule keeps going, and he is there dangling in the woods by his head in the forest. The Bible, right? The, only the Bible, right? And so he's dangling there, and, and, uh, and it says that his feet are, are, are not hanging, and, 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 a man, and a man comes up to him, and this is one of the soldiers of David, sees him, and immediately runs back to Joab and says, hey, you're not going to believe this. I was walking in the woods, and Joab's hanging by his head in the woods. And, and Joab says, well, why didn't you kill him? He goes, well, because David said, I heard, his, I heard him say, don't, you know, treat gently, you know, my son. So I wasn't going to, to, to hurt him and do that. And he says, but I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and a leather belt. Oh, a leather belt he would have gotten. And so understand this was not just, just a regular keep up your drawers kind of belt. This was a leather belt. It was a warrior's belt. It would have been something that would have been really, really precious to a warrior. And so he said, I would have given you all these things. But the guy's like, look, the king said no not to do it. So I'm not going to do it. And even if I did do it, then if I got caught, you wouldn't stand behind me. And Joab says, I've had enough of this. So he goes and he deals with it himself. He takes with him three spears when one spear is not enough. And so he takes three spears and he, and he plunges it into the body. It says into the heart which literally just means into his body, the mass of his body, into Absalom as he's dangling from this tree. And then he moves aside, and then he allows 10 of his other men, his shield bearers, to go ahead and begin to bludgeon him and bludgeon him to death. You wonder what I do all week. This is, this is it right here, trying to figure out what do we do with texts like this. Well, let me tell you what I don't think the text is about. I had a Sunday school teacher which basically told me that the point of this is this is a warning to all men who would grow out their hair and have long hair. 
Because what they would say is, as many of you probably heard this say, that when he got caught in the tree, it was because of his all long hair. And the reason that people would suggest that is because of his description back in chapter 14. The Bible says there that he was a beautiful man with a beautiful head of hair, and it grew so fast and was so luscious that he only cut it once a year. And at the end of the year, it was so heavy that it was just an annoyance for him. I mean, I feel his pain. I mean, how bad that must be to have all that heavy hair. And so he would cut it all off. And so I had a Sunday school teacher tell me, see, he grew it out. He shouldn't have long hair. Men shouldn't have long hair. Then he'd go to the New Testament and say, isn't it what? And so I, I, I love my Sunday school teachers, but I'm not sure that that's what the text is about. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say that he got caught by his hair. The Bible says that he got caught by his head. Now, could he have gotten caught by his hair? Well, probably. Could I? No, there's no way. Um, you had to, he got caught by his head. So the emphasis is not on whether he got caught by his head or, or by his hair. The key is that he was hung on a tree. That's the author's point. And the reason that that is so significant is because what we read about in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says, anyone hung on a tree is cursed. Absalom is cursed. There's a curse on him because there's a curse on sin. Anybody who is under sin, anybody who is disobeyed, is under the curse of sin. Absalom has been disobeying his father every step of the way, every opportunity that he has. Here is a man who is completely sinful. He thinks only of himself. How do we know? Well, the Bible says that he even built a monument to himself. Apparently, he had three sons. He wanted them to be able to carry on his name. He wanted people to know him and to be able to remember him. But because they died, he formed this giant monument for himself, and he named it after himself just so that when he passed, people would ultimately remember him. This is a man with a giant ego. He has no desire whatsoever to be able to submit himself to the king or submit himself to God. He wants to live his life for himself, do what's right in his own eyes, and because of it, he's under a curse. And the text of Scripture is telling us this is how it ends for everyone who remains under the curse. There was no way for this man to have, there was no way for him to have any other end. As long as he was under this sin, in his sin, this is the way that it ends. And, and the author is trying to get us across of just how cursed he is, not only because he hung on a tree, but also because he was thrown in a pit. It's important to understand where he is at this point. He's actually east of the Jordan, which means he's no longer in the promised land. And for the Jewish people at the time, not to be buried within the promised land is to be accursed. And then, uh, on top of that, when literally on top of that, when he's buried, they pile up a whole uh, amount of stones, not just to be able to mark where he died and where he was buried, but to demonstrate a symbolism that he was cursed. Because in the Word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 21, the Bible says that any man who disrespects his father ought to be stoned as a curse because he is under the curse of sin. And so here we have it, hanging in a tree, in a pit, outside of, of, outside of the promised land, and now with stones piling up, showing that this man is a curse. And the author just wants to let us know that this is the end for all who are under the curse of sin. This is the end of all who remain under the curse of sin. Did you, are you hearing what I'm saying? It's a reminder for you and I that there may be some here that if you haven't repented of your sin, if you haven't turned from your sin and placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, there is a curse upon you, and it can only end in one way. Here's the hard part. Everybody who is out there sinning, not living for God, thinks their story is going to end differently. And the truth is it just won't. It never will. 
And, and so I, I was talking with Ryan this week, and, uh, and we were kind of joking around, and I just kind of sat there, and I said, isn't that funny, isn't it interesting how we always think that sin is going to somehow work out for us when it never works out for anybody else? And he goes, you know, it reminds me of a story. And so he told me this story. He's not here this morning. He's preaching at another church. No, he's not preaching in view of a call. They needed somebody, so he's preaching there. <gasps> All right, and so, he, and so I just kind of began to talk with him because, uh, anyway, and so I just began to talk with him, and he goes, it reminds me of one night. He goes, you know, he goes, I love chips and dip. It's my favorite snack. And so he goes, one night I was just eating some chips and dip. It was late at night, and I was watching TV, and I was flipping through the channels. And he goes, and all of a sudden, he goes, I landed on this show called My 600-Pound Life. And he goes, and I was watching this, eating my chips and dip, and as I'm watching this all go down, they begin to ask this lady, they're like, well, where do you think the problem really began? Where do you, can you look back at a time when you said, hey, this was the starting point of when everything went south for me and everything went wrong? She goes, yeah. She goes, it was my love for chips and dip. <laughs> so, 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 so Ryan stops, of course, like anybody would, looks at his chip, look at his dip, and he's got a decision to make. I said, well, what did you do? He said, I dipped that chip, and I ate it, and I just continued to eat it. And, and, and I sat there, and he goes, and he goes, and man, he goes, it's so like us. He goes, we think in our minds that it's going to be different for us. And I said, but bro, you ain't 600 pounds. And he goes, I would be if I keep eating those chips and dip. There's no other way around it. And so we, we, we tend to begin to think that this whole sin thing we can live our life, do whatever way, what we want without being in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think oftentimes that it is somehow going to end in a different way. And yet the word of God teaches us that it does not. It didn't for Adam and Eve. God said on the, tree, uh, on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. It's precisely what happened. We know that it happened to Absalom here. There was even a warning in 2 Samuel 17 that says, For the Lord had, had ordained the defeat of the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. If he remained in his way of sin, the curse would ultimately remain. And the Bible teaches us today, it says this, it says, It is true for every one of us, for unless we repent, we shall all likewise, what? Perish. There's no change in the ending, and that's the bad, bad news. That's the bad news of this, this sin of sin's curse, but of course there's good news. Now, this is what I love about the author. The author, every time, it seems like he bails us out at the end. He gives us these really sad stories, and then he gives us some hope in the end that teaches us and reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure you do. All right. And so, so, so here, what I love is he doesn't even let us get to the end for the good news. He reminds us in the, in the front that there's even good news. In the very beginning, he's like, you can't wait. Because you and I know that when we hear somebody hanging on a tree, if you know the story of Jesus Christ, you know he hung on a tree as well. So he's telling us this is the end. This is as bad as it gets. But I want to let you know there's a way out from underneath this curse. Because he's not the only one that hung on a tree. There's another one that hung on a tree. There can be a substitute for you and for me. There's be somebody else who hung on a tree in our place. And we know that's the person of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a tree. And he was not only hung on a tree, he was, he was thrown into a hole in the ground. And what else? He had a large, massive stone rolled before it. But the good news is, that stone was rolled away on the third day after his death, and he came up out of that tomb, letting you and I know that anyone who repents and places their faith in Jesus Christ is no longer under the curse of sin. Amen? That's point number one. 
It gets worse after this. But um, that, that was good. Number, n- number two, that was sin's curse. Number two, sin's contamination. Look, when you're reading these stories, you're trying to figure out what to make of these different characters. It's not hard to, make mu- to, to know what to think about Absalom. We've seen him sin chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. We know how this is all going to end for him, and we're, there's no surprises. A character in this is hard to figure out is Joab, is what to do with this guy. Remember, Joab is really a commander, but he's the commander of David's army. He's also a nephew of David, and he's also disobedient to David, just like Absalom was. He, he disobeyed him. David said, made sure to deal gently with Absalom. David not only ignored it, he did just the opposite. He worked at sinning against David. He, he made sure that he, 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 he rebuked a man that didn't kill Absalom. He, he, he decided that he was going to give a reward for anybody who would to encourage the death of Absalom. He didn't use one but three spears. And then he sat around and encouraged a bunch of men to, to beat his son to death, Absalom's son to death. And so, look, there's no way, there's no way to parse this except for the fact that, that, that this man, Joab, was completely wrong in what he did in, obey, in disobeying the clear command of David. So that's the bad side. He did what was wrong. But on the other side, there's something that he did absolutely right. He seems to be the only character in this, this whole story that has a clue of what's really going on and what really needs to be done. He's the only one in the whole story. David was clueless. He demonstrated that he did not have to know how to deal with his son. When his son, way back when, ended up killing his half-brother, which was, remember, was also David's son, instead of enacting justice on him, what did he do? He completely ignored it, turned a blind eye, and even invited him back into the household with no punishment, no discipline whatsoever. Now, what what has he done? Now, this same son who murdered his brother, David's son, has now sexually harassed and attacked David's own harem. He's also commanded war against David, and now he's going to do all he can to be able to kill his dad. And what does his dad say? What does his dad do? He says, deal gently with my son. So Absalom sits back and he goes, this is completely wrong because Absalom understands something. As long as David kept bringing Absalom back, he would continue to be a threat to David, his family, and his throne. David was dealing with his son, sin, and I think that's what he kind of represents in the story. I'm not trying to become figurative in in what's happening. But remember, David represents God and his kingdom, and even more explicitly, the Savior, And then we have Absalom, who was doing everything he can. He represents sin. And so here he is. He's not cutting it off. He's just letting it go. David wanted to cure this cancer with candy. And Joab knew that the only way to be able to cure cancer is to take drastic measures by cutting it out. As a pastor, it's been sad for me over the 20-plus years. It's sad for me when folks within the church, they get sick. And some get cancer, and some get all different types of things. But there's one thing that I have never heard in, all, in, in those years of ministry. I've never sat with somebody and prayed with them right before they go back into, in, in, for surgery and had a, a surgeon come in and be able to sit there and say, hey, are, are you okay? Yeah, everything is okay. And then have them sit there and say, doc, if you don't mind, when you're cutting out the surgery, just leave a little bit behind if you don't mind. Just take 90% out. Leave the rest behind. Why don't they do that? Because they know that sin is going to contaminate the rest of them. 
And if you leave that cancer in there, it's going to grow, it's going to contaminate the whole, and it's going to bring about what? It's going to bring about death. The Bible says that you and I, when it comes to sin, we cannot play with sin. It is dangerous. It contaminates not only all of us, it contaminates everybody around us. And the Bible says that we're not supposed to deal, deal gently with our own sin. We're supposed to cut it off. The, listen to what Jesus' word says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. He says, for it is better that you lose one of your own members than, than that of your whole body be thrown into hell. And, and people always say, well, is he telling us to literally pluck out our eye? No, I don't think he's literally doing that. That would just be another sin. We're sinning against uh, the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. We ought not to do that. But what he is saying is you need to be radical. I need to be radical in making sure sin does not, it does not remain in our life. We play with it too much. Oftentimes when we think about sin, there could be, and look, I know there's all kinds of issues, all kinds of things about, is it wrong to drink, Christians drink? We got folks in here that honestly believe that if anybody ever drinks a beer, they're going to bust hell wide open. We got other people who sit there and go, hey man, it's an absolute freedom of God, it's okay, it's whatever. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you my stance. Are you ready? This is how you lose people in the church. Here it is. You ready? I'm, I'm going to show you firsthand. It is not inherently evil to be able to have a beer or an alcoholic beverage, any of that other kind of stuff. But let me tell you something. If it causes you to stumble, you get drunk with it, and you're causing other people to do you need to cut it out. You need to cut it out. It's ridiculous. And, and, and people get angry with that, and they're going to stop giving, and that's okay. That's why we're debt-free, because of people like you. And so, uh, and so that's, that's why. But, but here, here, here's, here's what I'm saying with all this is... If there's something, whether you drink it or whether you eat it or whether you watch it or whether it's a relationship you have and you find yourself continually stumbling over it, get over it. Get it out. There's a man that I remember, an old deacon in our church, or, or an old pastor, I'm sorry, an old pastor, and he was in a wheelchair. And I remember him coming in. He was speaking to, the, to a youth group. And he came in and he sat there and he began to ta tell us about this, this principle, about cutting these things out of your life. And he sat down and he said to me, and he goes, he goes, you know, he goes, I used to have an old dog. Now, this is an old preacher. And he sat there and he goes, and I named, and he was, he was kind of a mean dog. He was a little schizophrenic. He didn't know who he was. He was everywhere. He goes, so I, I named him Deacon. And, uh, and some of you will get that. Some of you won't, but not our deacons, but, uh, but, but, but the Deacon. And so he goes, he goes, and what was crazy about the dog is he goes, three out of four times, he was the nicest dog in the world. People would come up, he'd wag his tail, he'd go, you'd pat him on the head. He'd be like, good boy, Deacon, good boy, Deacon. He goes, but one out of about every four people, he would just tear into them. I mean, just tear into them, bite into them. He goes, and there was no rhyme or reason. We didn't know if it was an adult. We didn't know what was, what was doing this. And he goes, you know what we finally had to decide? We finally had to decide how often does this thing end up causing harm? How, how, when do we make a decision to get rid of this dog because of the harm that he ultimately commits? And that's what the Bible is telling us here is, listen, David is sitting back and he is placating the sin. He is allowing it to be able to remain. He's not dealing with it. He's not, he's not addressing it. So guess what it's going to do? It's going to continue to pervade his life. It's going to continue to come into his life and be infectious, not only in his own life, but contaminate everybody who's ultimately around him. The only one that had any sense in this text, though not perfect, was Joab who says, you've got to cut it out. Now, there's a third thing that we want to look at very quickly within the text of Scripture, and that is sin's confrontation. Sin's confrontation. So what we have for the rest of the text in the beginning of 19, let me sum it up for you as quickly as I can. 
uh, what we have is we have basically David receiving the story about the battle and the victory at the battle, as well as the news of his own father. And so what, what happens within the text is this. There's a man by the name of Ahimeaz, and he comes up, and he basically tells Joab, hey, listen, let me go deliver this message to David. Now, you might be familiar with this young man because he was the one who hid in the well. He was the one who actually got to David and gave him the news that, guess what? You need to go into exile to be able to save your life. Same guy, same Ahimeaz. I know you thought there was two of them, but there was, there's just the one. And so Ahimeaz, now he, wants to, he delivered bad news to David, about exile. Now he wants to bring him back, and he wants to deliver the good news to David. So we asked Joab to be able to go. Joab says, no, you're not, you're not going to take this. Not because he thinks that Ahimeaz couldn't do the job. It was because he knew David. And if you've been in our study, you know that David has a tendency to kill messengers who come to him and tell him that his enemies are dead. He kills every one of them. And so he's probably trying to protect Ahimeaz, and so he ends up sending out what he says is a Cushite, as a Cushite. And you say, why would he send a Cushite? Biblical reason is because he is not a Jew. And so he's thinking to himself, well, I don't want to kill the Jewish people, so we'll send this guy. It's really bad. It's kind of like when you, when you have older brothers and sisters and a little brother or sister, you don't want to ask your parents something, so you send the young one. Yeah, just go ask him. Just go ask him. All right? I think the other reason is because, I mean, let's face it, a Cushite's got to be adorable, right? <laughs> a Cushite sounds like a little plush animal. <laughs> anyway, and so so he sends the Cushite, he sends the Cushite to be able to go, and here's, he, finally he continues to just beg him, please send me, allow me to be able to go, allow me to be able to tell him, and finally he says go. So he's thinking, you know, the Cushite is way ahead of him, he's going to go, but he's never going to be able to catch up. Little did he know that this guy's got some wheels, this guy can run, and so Ahimeaz, man, he just gets it, and he's running, and he takes a better path, and he's faster, and he ends up getting to David before the Cushite comes. And, and, and David sees all this, and he says, oh, here, here he comes. And one of the guards is like, yeah. He goes, I, a messenger's coming. And the way that he's running, it looks just like a Ahimeaz. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's, you know, and you're like, oh, that's a Ahimeaz. We know who that is. And so he, he runs, and he goes, it must be good news. They see the Cushite. The Cushite now is coming. He's, he's, he goes, this must be great news. So Ahimeaz comes up. Here's what he says, verse 8, all is well, and he bowed with his face to the earth, and he said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised your hand, their hand against my Lord the King. And then David asked him what's really on his heart. He says, is it well with the young man Absalom? But Ahimeaz refuses to tell him, and he actually lies to him. He says, well, he says, when Joab sent the, the king's servant, your servant, I saw the commotion, but I do not know what it is, what it was. Go back to verse 12 or 20. He knew exactly that this man had died. He lies to him. And so finally, he says, set aside, and then all of a sudden the Cushite comes, verse 31, he says, good news for the Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. But David, again, wanting to know the truth, he's more concerned really with his son than he is with all of Israel. Something's wrong here. Uh, then what does he do? He tells him at this particular point, he, he, he comes, he says, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered. May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David puts two and two together and realizes that his son has been put to death. And the Bible says he doesn't take it well at all. He goes through this thing constantly saying, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. And he's moping around, he's crying out. And if you're a parent, you can understand his pain and the difficulty that he's facing through all of this. We don't want to limit any of this. And so what happens? What are we to do with all of this and through his mourning? 
I'm going to tap into chapter 19 in just a minute, but let me just give you three points of this. Here's the overall, what I think is happening, and this is where I struggled most this week. I think what's happening is if there is truly a sin's curse and people are under it, and there is certainly sin's contamination, that when we sin, not only we're contaminating in ourselves, but those around them, then there must be some confrontation to sin to let people be aware of the position that they're in, of what they're doing and what's happening within their life. Somebody has to say this. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, we understand that it's through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that convicts us. But what is the means by which God uses that? It's through a preacher. And I don't mean just a preacher like me kind of preacher. I mean anybody who is going to speak truth in the life of somebody else to be able to confront them. And I think that this is where we're going. David is still in sin. Don't, 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 don't forget this. Oftentimes when we think of David being in sin, we think of terms of what? We think of his, um, his, the sins of commission, the ones that he committed with Uriah of killing him, as, as well as, as uh, uh, committing adultery uh, with, with his wife, with Bathsheba, the sins of commission. But church, do not forget, the majority of our sins, probably as believers, is, is more, more about omission, not doing the things that God has expressly called us to be able to do. And so what has God called him to do? He was supposed to be standing up for justice. He was the one supposed to be leading the whole nation. He was the one that was supposed to be disciplining his son. He was the one who was supposed to be out in war. He wasn't doing anything that God had called him to do. Please understand, he's still very much in sin, but instead of the commission sin, he's in the omission sin, not doing what he needs to be doing. And he needs to be confronted. Let me give you three things in the confronting of one another. By the way, this must be a point that God wants us to get before we get to the end of this book. Because this is the third time we've covered the same subject. Confronting people in their sin. It must be a theme that the Lord wants us to be able to get. Let me give you three things in confronting. When confronting someone in sin, we need to speak truth. We need to speak truth. Not half-truths, but whole-truths. The truth usually consists, let me just understand this, usually consists of both good news and bad news. It's not always good news. We call the gospel good news, right? But, and we know it's the truth. But yet, does it have both good and bad news in it? Yes. Here's what we like to do when we share the gospel. I want to share the gospel. How do you share the gospel? Tell everybody that Jesus loves them, Jesus died for them, wants to forgive them their sin, give them a new life, give them a new life in heaven, give them eternal life, take away all their tears, wipe away all their tears, give them a new life, give them a mansion in heaven. Woo! And all that's true, and all that's great. What we don't want to say is we don't want to give them the whole truth, which includes the bad news. Was that mine? Oh, was that? Oh, was that yours? Oh. Whose was that? No, I'm just kidding. That's okay. And so, so, so the idea, the idea is simply this, is that I don't know what the idea is. To be honest with you, I'm completely gone. Uh, I have no idea where I was. You can throw something. Ooh, yeah, we were at the ooh. This won't be the one that goes on the sermon on the internet. Anybody help me out? Where are we? Okay, that doesn't help. That does. Where was it? Oh, speak truth. Yeah, but I don't know where I was in that. But anyway, the speech. Oh, with the gospel. With the gospel. I mean, I had it so good, too. And 
But the idea is the part that we don't want to do and nobody wants to be able to say is, hey, bro, that's the good news. The bad news is right now you are already condemned. You are already condemned to hell. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. If your lights were to go out now, you would spend eternity separated from God in, ever, in, in, in forever torment. And you are worthy for every bit of your suffering. We don't want to be able to share that. But if you've got to speak the truth, you've got to speak both the bad news and the good news. And it's the same way within our church. When I preach, people might want to come, and I can't tell you how many times i said, man, I like to go there, but you know, I, like to, I like to feel good. And look, we all like to feel good. But I, don't, I, I can't speak truth without telling you some of the bad news. In the same way with you, is you might have some relationships and good relationships with Christian friends, but every once in a while, there's going to be some bad news that you're going to have to confront that person with and tell them, hey, man, you're good at this and you're good at... Look, we love to be the guy that props everybody up and encourages everybody up. I'm not that guy, clearly. I'm not that guy. But we love that. But we can't always be that and be people of truth. Number two, number two, when confronting someone in sin, we need great wisdom. Now, this is what happens in chapter 19. I need to hurry now. On chapter 19... Joab is sick of this attitude with him. And so he takes a completely different approach with David. Listen to what he says. He says, You have today covered the shame of the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that you would be pleased. That a rebuke. What I'm saying is we've got to have really great wisdom when we're really approaching each other in sin. Sometimes it's going to be much more very kind, very loving, very gentle. And you know what I find sometimes is sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes what you have to do is you have to grab somebody by the ear and you go, bro, I need you to listen to what it is that I'm telling you right here, right now. And sometimes it's a lot more firm. And it may not be loving, and it may not appear to be, um, it may not appear, I'm not talking about physically touching somebody, but you understand what I mean. But I'm telling you it's no less loving. In fact, I'm reminded of this story about the story of Lot. Remember the story of Lot when there's so much sin within the city, God is gracious enough to be able to rescue Lot and his family, his wife and his two daughters, and he sends an angel and says, you guys have got to get out of here. And he says, and he says up, take your wife and your two daughters who, who are here. He goes, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But you know what he did? The Bible says, but he lingered. The angel's trying to let him know, bro, you need to get out. You need to get your family out now. But he lingered. And what did the angel do as a demonstration of grace and mercy? He says, so he seized the man and his, wife and, his, and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and he took them out of the city. But here's a little phrase you have to remember. Was it because he was being abusive? Was it because he was being mean? Was it because he was being hateful? No, here's the phrase, the Lord being merciful to them. Sometimes just saying a hard word to somebody is merciful. Now, here's the, here's the bottom line. People are often going to praise us for that. Even, even, even earlier in, in, in one of the passages, um, uh, uh, Joab ends up telling him in the beginning of uh, chapter 18, when, when he wants to go and he wants to share this and he wants to tell David these things, he actually says to him, he says, he says why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for news? In other words, sometimes we say things and we're really putting our own 
our own reputations. We're putting our own relationships on the line. There may be no reward for it, but we need to be able to speak that truth to one another. Here's, here's one more thing, and I think this might be the most important. Third thing, when confronting someone in sin, we need to be caring in doing it. This is what I don't want to happen from this passage. I know that there are probably some men who are sitting here, maybe even some women sitting here going, that's me. I tell it like it is. I tell people. And I go home, and I tell my kids exactly what it is, and I don't pull any punches, and I tell my wife what's wrong and what's wrong with her, and tell her what she's doing wrong inside of the house. Man, I make sure that people understand what's clear. I, I, I'm the one that gives this kind of straight up confront people when they're in sin and wrong. You know what? Nobody in your house likes you. Nobody likes you. Your kids don't like you. Your wife doesn't like you. Your dog doesn't like you. Nobody likes you in that house. That's not what we're talking about here. And you sit back and go, man, I do this all the time. I tell people all the time why they're doing what is wrong and, and where they're falling short. You know why it never works for you? Is because you only do it out of care for yourself and not care for anybody else. People are not living up to your standard. They're not doing what you want them to do. They're not living the way you want. So the only reason for you to confront them is because you want them to please you. And that never works. See, it's different when you do like this man. See, this, he, he did talk about himself in the midst of this, but look, look at the very last part. He says, when therefore, he goes, arise, go out. He tells him now, and therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. He doesn't even talk about himself here. Joab doesn't. He goes, bro, if you keep doing this, you think things have been bad? You have no idea what kind of chaos and pain you're going to experience. This has nothing to do with Joab. He cares for David. He doesn't want to see David go through this. He doesn't want to see David disciplined by God. And oftentimes within our relationships, that's what has to happen. You and I have to become more broken for the sin of an individual and their sin against God and the consequences that they're going to, then, that they're going to have to face than, than, the, than our own personal hurt and what they're ultimately doing to us. Does that make sense? We have to come to the point where we sit there and go, bro, the reason I'm going to speak this truth to you is not because I think if you listen to it, my life's going to be better. I'm telling you the truth because your life's going to be better. It's a huge difference in confronting somebody in their sin. And so here, here's what we have. We have the curse of sin. There's a sin's curse that is very real, and I'd encourage you to do this. If you're still under the curse of sin, never repent and believe, repent and believe. But it should encourage us as believers who are not under the curse of sin that, guess what? The P, there are many people out there who have never heard the gospel, who have never repented, and their end is going to be the same as we see here. They are accursed. Number two, Contamination. You cannot play with sin. You cannot, if it is causing you over and over, even if it's the third time or the fourth time causing you to stumble, some of those things we need to take out of our life, we need to radically cut them out of our lives. And number three, there's some sin. There's some times that we need to, you and I, need to confront people to warn them that if they continue to go in their path, that, they're going to be sinful, that, that there's going to be dire consequences. But guess what? You and I also need to be open for confrontation. Somebody comes to you and somebody comes to me, even if they don't have it all right, 
Even if they don't come with all the wisdom in the world, even if you're not even completely sure that they're saying it in your best interest, God might be using it for you to be able to correct, be corrected. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you today. We honor you for all you are. God, we glorify you. Lord, I just pray that this morning that we'll allow this word to be able to work in us, work through us, transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand.